I don't even know the name of that choke. Somebody said it was Ezekiel. Is that true? That may or may not be true. Ezekiel in Oregon, you go to Whole Foods, it's a kind of bread. Ezekiel in the octagon, you get on top. I mean, maybe. What's happening, guys? Happy Tuesday, and thank you for joining another special episode of Your Welcome. Man, UFC 293, what a great night of fighting. And I got to say, it didn't turn out like most of us expected, but I did pull some of you on social media, and it's very fair to say that you guys are smarter than me. More on that later, guys, but let's begin with the only place that makes sense because Sean Strickland being a UFC champion is all we need to talk about right now. Sean Strickland beats Israel Adesanya. How? How is the biggest question, particularly when they're talking about doing a rematch? Okay, how did you beat him? Now, if I'm in Strickland's shoes, the number one thing that I cannot do going into the fight is stand up and trade with Israel Adesanya. And there's guys in history who have an incredible power that can level a playing field. I use my own teammate, Dan Henderson, but Dan Henderson had so much power and what later got called the H-bomb. He had so much power that it would make the other guy think. There's a lot in striking that's a setup. From the foot movements you see, to slipping around, the jab. I mean, every boxing coach walks in the gym will tell you the jab's the most important weapon. The jab, the jab, the jab, the jab, the jab. The jab has never hurt anybody. It's only annoying. But it is really important So to measure your opponent, to distract your opponent to keep something in your opponent's face, to get him from getting his offense going, and above everything else, so that you can then use an actual power shot that can do something known as your cross. So I bring this to you because Sean just doesn't have that power. Sean is not one of those guys where he can level the playing field in a very rare way that is almost a birthright to certain individuals. He doesn't have that. So you're then going to go look at the wrestling of Sean, right? If I can't stand up with a guy, then I've got to wrestle with the guy. That is always the belief within the sport. And Sean is an excellent wrestler, and he uses that excellent wrestling much like Justin Gaethje does for defense. Justin Gaethje is an All-American Division I. He doesn't use that wrestling to get on top of somebody. He uses it to make sure somebody doesn't get on top of him. So if we take that away, there's a third realm, and it's the one that nobody speaks about because so few, few people understand it, but it's known as the clinch. Now, in Thai boxing, the clinch is allowed and even encouraged. But to my understanding, my limited level of research, Adesanya, while training at Thai boxing gyms, never actually competed in that. Sean Strickland, meanwhile, is an MMA fighter, not to mention he's in the extreme couture gym, not to mention Randy Couture is the one that brought the idea of the clinch to MMA, could have, right, I mean, I, I, had, to, I had to take you on quite a ride there, but he could have some opportunity. I never bought into the idea that Sean Strickland was going to go take Izzy down, and moreover, if he did do it, I never bought into the idea that he could rinse and repeat that for 25 minutes. Yoel Romero did it one time in 25 minutes. And didn't keep busy there. I mean, I'm just sharing for perspective for you. That's a really hard ask. That's a really hard ground and pound right there. Of the ways you're going to beat Izzy, if you come to me and you tell me ground and pound, I know that you're not very good at breaking down strategy. But I think we can all at least agree that the worst thing that could happen for Sean is that he has to go out for 25 minutes and stand up with Israel Adesanya. 
And the reason I bring that to you is if you're looking to do a rematch, which sounds as though exactly where these two are headed, then what is going to be different and why should we expect a different result? And I don't know that we've seen something quite like that before. I can think of times where this great striker got taken down and it was a surprise, and I bet you he can't do that again. I've seen that. Or or, or I've seen great grapplers, but they end up the guard and they get a triangle put on them. Like, I can play the same game the same way that you guys can, but I don't know of a time when somebody that had a distinguished career in one specific art lost 25 minutes against an opponent and had no time within that art. So it's a very different match. Like, like if we were to redo it, I believe that Adesanya will be the favorite next time. In fact, before I sat down here with you guys, I went to DraftKings to see if they had a hypothetical auto, uh, lineup yet, and they do, and Adesanya's the favorite, but it's close. DraftKings right now, it's minus 120 for Izzy. It's plus 100 for Sean Strickland. That's as close to even money as I know how to speak. That would technically make Izzy the favorite. But that's as close to even money as you're going to be able to get. What happened to six to one? Oh, where did that go? It's the same two guys doing the same two things. What is it that you saw if you're making a line at DraftKings? Or moreover, what is it that you missed? What is it that you wanted to see? Did you want to see Izzy doing what most guys that lose a title do, which is to hold their hand and say they need some time off? This thing's been broken for two months. I just didn't want to let this crowd down. That historically is what most guys would do. Did you want him to put his his foot up when he's at the press conference and have a big thing of ice on it? And then then people ask him what's wrong with it. He says, oh, it's nothing. It'll be gone by morning, right? Letting the world know he's hurt while showing the world it doesn't matter that he's hurt. I mean, these are generally how these stories are told. This is generally how this is done. I don't think we've seen anybody be a man about it like Adesanya that says this belt, this thing here is no longer mine. It now belongs to you. Have a nice night. It's a very interesting spot. So then, and that quite literally happened at the press conference. Quite literally, Izzy walks out, grabs a microphone, tells the media members, I'm going to go be with people who love me. Puts the microphone down left, and then Eugene Berryman came out and did the interview. Which, I mean, you understand the problem with that. Wherever Izzy's going and whoever qualifies as the people that love him, we now know who doesn't. That's his coach because his coach is right here doing the interview. I mean, right, like things got a little bit weird. I understand that this was for theater, but it would be a question if you went back to the drawing board and now you're the challenger, which he is, and you're going to go and redo it. What does that training camp look like? And I know so many guys that they will bring in the great grappler. They're going to fly in from Brazil, this grappling coach. They're going to learn how to get up off the bottom. It was nothing like that. It was your absolute best, your bread and butter, your number one thing. So what is it you do differently? Sean Strickland spoke on it. He said, I felt like he wasn't even trying. He said he wasn't hard. I felt like he wasn't trying. Strickland then said, and I'll add, this is an exact quote. He said, he was worse than some of my bad sparring partners. And so I'll ask you guys again. There wasn't an injury, at least one that's not going to be disclosed to us. Has he fought too often? This was Izzy's fourth fight since July of last year. He was busy on Twitter and social media. In fact, I just spoke to Errol Hawani, and Errol offered that as a potential excuse how busy Izzy was on social media, which I think just the larger part that Errol's speaking to is how much was on his shoulders to bring this event and make sure it was out there in front of the world. I just don't see that changing for the rematch. 
I know some guys that have done it. I know some guys that go get the rematch and don't ever tell the promoter, hey, I'm not your partner. I'm not doing anything. I'm going to go do my own thing and then go out and do it. Like, I have seen that happen before, but I don't think that's who Asanya is. So if they get to the rematch and the first match was done 100% in the area that by design Izzy would like it, what can you do different? And from a physical standpoint, there was only one thing that was glaringly obvious to me, and that was just how much Izzy was backing up. I've seen Izzy, he seems like he can fight in every which direction, laterally, forward, backing up. But to spend 25 minutes backing up did seem to me like a surprise. And by the way, what was he backing away from? I would love to know that. If he, if he was really worried about the threat of a takedown by a guy in Sean Strickland, who I don't believe has ever taken anybody down, I don't think that Sean has gone out on purpose and taken, and I'm talking about anybody, literal statement. What was it he was backing away from? And what would have happened if he didn't back up? What would have happened if he would have stood his ground and got into a firefight? What would have happened if Izzy was going forward? What would have happened if Izzy clinched and grabbed him? I, I don't know the answers to these questions. I just know more over rinse and repeat if there was anything about the fight that was a surprise. Sean Strickland's hard to hit. Sean Strickland's got a very awkward stance. By example, Sean Strickland will stand like this. If you guys are fight fans, you've seen this stance before, but you've only seen it in boxing. There's never been a good MMA fighter to do it. Well, as a matter of fact, you want to be literal, there's been two in history, Chuck Liddell and Sean Strickland. They're the only guys that have even gotten close to championship matches, let alone the belt, that stand like this. It's very awkward. Sometimes when you have an awkward guy, you just got to feel him one time. You feel him one time, it takes the masks off, you're ready to go. But I felt him one time, it took the mask off, I'm ready to go, does not sound like something that you could put a marquee poster, a countdown show, or anything else that you're going to use for promotional reasons. So if you have to rebuild this match, and I believe that you do, what story is it that you plan to tell to convince the audience that you're going to get a different outcome? so difficult to beat. He was so difficult to deal with. He was so difficult to game plan for. And Matt Horwich was almost a secret weapon amongst Team Quest. And one thing about Matt is all the guys in the room that were within Matt's weight class either could beat him or they knew how to beat him. Hear me out. They either could beat him or they would at least know how to beat him. But outside of the room, in any kind of competition, it could be Desert Brawl, it could be the Rumble at the Roseland, it could be the WEC, which it was, all the way to the IFL. Do you guys remember that international fight league? Matt Horwich was a champion. He was the middleweight champion. He had the belt around his waist. I mean, there was good fighters over there. And he was the king of them all. I remember Mike Pyle and Jay Haran and, and, and Dan Miller. I mean, these are just all guys within the weight class. And Horwich has the belt. And Horwich had one secret, which is the rope-a-dope. Horwich was very difficult to hurt, and he didn't mind if you tried. So you'd see guys, and they would come out, and they would see an opportunity, and they would start teeing off almost like highlight stuff, right? Almost like they got a punching bag in front of them. But Horwich could take it, and that guy would then be exhausted. And it was night after night after night, they would be exhausted. And now it was Matt's turn. Oh, by the way, he had a black belt in jiu-jitsu. 
when a guy has some ability, but you don't know what it is, you've either got to feel it or you've got to see it or somebody needs to let you in on it. But when you go for a kill and you're trained like that and the guy is giving you positions to go ahead and finish, it's very di difficult. It's very seductive to want to go in and do that. It's what you've been told. You've been told by your coaches and your trainers who are yelling right behind you, go for it, go for it, you got him. Done by the referee that's looking in, the promoter himself. Everybody's telling you these things, but Horwich wouldn't go away and now you don't have any energy left. I tell you that because I know firsthand guys like this exist. And the only reason that us at the gym, when I told you the guys within his weight class at the gym could deal with it, they couldn't themselves. They saw him so often and practiced with him so often. Eventually they go, oh, here's the secret. Here's what I need to overcome. And here's the positions I need to maintain. Now that story was meant to serve the great Matt Horwich, by the way. But I heard Chris Curtis on Errol Hawani's show today, talking about Sean Strickland. And he was talking about how difficult of a style that Sean has. Talked about the fact of how upright he is. Talked about where he holds his hands. Talked about how hard it is to, to hit his face. His body's a little bit more open, but he's going to make you pay. He doesn't wear down. He just said, your first time going with Sean is always the worst. But if you come back the next day, there is adjustments that you can make. And if you come back the day after that, and if you stick around for another few months, there are adjustments that you can make to deal with the awkward style of Sean Strickland. Now, this is Chris Curtis speaking, who I believe is Sean's best friend. It's at least one of his top closest friends in our sport. And Curtis, of course, was saying good things about Sean. But there was another side that I drew from it, even if it was the unintentional side that did make me reflect back to my time with Matt Horwich, which is... Is Sean just as good as we saw? Is Sean is as good as Izzy had to deal with? Or is Sean as awkward and getting able to have that one feeling and then try it again doesn't serve Sean, it serves his opponent? I'm asking that question. It was very hard for me to hear what Chris Curtis said and not come to that conclusion. You know, Sean, after that fight with Izzy, was trying to be a gentleman. You know, Sean cried in front of the world, and that's something not something that he wanted to do. But that was a real guy having a real moment. And it's an interesting spot. I worked out with Sean a lot myself. I didn't have the same experience that Curtis had. I did feel where he was awkward. And I did feel things about him that were a surprise. He was surprisingly good at getting his hips back. He was surprisingly difficult to touch in the face. If you went to the body, he didn't even care. I mean, he wouldn't even block it. The body would be, the face, it was just hard. It was these little movements, little two-inch, half-inch movements. So what is Izzy going to do, <laughs> right? Is it a case, and how often do you have to feel it? I mean, you got to feel it in the first round, then you get some advice for the second round, and he felt it again, then you got to try it for the third round, or does it not work that way? Do you have to go back to the drawing board? Is it something where you can watch the video and your coaches can show you to get to these adjustments that Chris Curtis talked about? Possibly. But the video and the coaches, they, they had six weeks to go and watch these things. Was that something that was overlooked? Everybody makes mistakes. I'll live with that answer. I'm just curious. I'm very curious. See, it would seem to me that there would be no reason to do a rematch. But history tells me they're going to do a rematch. So why that, the first part becomes a mute point. So now you come to point number three. Does Sean want a rematch? I can see where a rematch would be good for Izzy. Does Sean want to rematch? Well, Sean came out and said... Izzy felt like he wasn't even trying. 
said that guy was worse than my bad sparring partners. And this is Sean in a good mood trying to make nice with people. And that's still how he worded it. Now, every champion has the same job. Every champion's job is the exact same, which is to make the most money against the easiest opponent. So if what Sean is telling us is true, and every time Sean talks, he is giving his version of truth, it would seem like, boom, that's right where we land. Exactly. But one mistake that the victor has, the victor goes into a rematch and never wants to change anything. When you win the fight, you don't sit down with your coaches and you don't find flaws. You're not critical. You don't change. You think everything went perfect, all the way down to the training camp. Well, I ate these things during training camp. Everybody told me I shouldn't, but now we know that I can because I won. I skipped these workouts or I added these workouts, whatever it might be. But everything I did, I now get a rubber stamp pass. And it was the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do to the point that I'll do it again. And it's the right thing and I'll do it again because I won. And it's very hard to come out and be critical. It's very hard for a coach to sit you down and say, look at this. You got away with it. And you get away again in this round and in this round here. You get away with it over and over. You're not going to get away with it next time. He should have exploited you then. He's at home with his coaches working on it, and this is the moment they're looking for. Stop doing this. It's very hard, next to rare, next to nearly impossible, where those kinds of conversations take place. So what is going to be different if you have a great kickboxer in Adesanya who has proven if I can just kickbox with somebody longer than I can do other things with somebody, I'll win because I'm that good at it. What do you do when you have 25 minutes, and how quick does he want the rematch? I'm interested in those things. Adesanya's got every right to be in any frame of mind that he's in. From up, from down, from neutral to I don't even want the belt back all that bad. I've done this journey. I've proven myself. Good for Sean. I'm going to take a little bit of break. At which point we bring somebody else in. Or is he to do what I think he will do, which is get me in there and get me in there as quickly as possible. Well, as quickly as possible goes against the narrative that there's changes that can be made. So you find that sweet spot, right? You buy just enough time and you go out and you redo the match. But during that whole phase, you're going to hear something from Duplices, who thinks he's the number one contender. And then you're going to hear something from Chemayev and Paula Costa, who, why that has obviously been a number one, or while it's been revealed to us as a number one contender's match for Chemayev, and as long as Chemayev wins, now it looks like either one, they both are great parody, with a new head of the division. But is the head of the division going to stay at the top of the division? Right? You see where there's all these moving parts, and there's nowhere for you to answer. They're almost like rhetorical questions. Like, as I ask you, uh, ask the questions of you, I know that you don't have an answer for them. But neither would anybody else. And it would just seem as everybody needs to take whatever fight they can get whenever they can get it. It would seem as though Duplisi is a very open target. It would seem as though Sean Strickland and going after him, not knowing if Izzy even is interested in doing the rematch or right away, it seems as though these things would make a level of sense. But you don't have any 85 powders that are doing it. And you do have to wonder what Sean wants. You'd have to wonder, does Sean have some kind of heat? I mean, the whole reason that Izzy wants to fight Sean is because he's got one over on him. Well, Sean's got a guy in the front row that did the same to him, right? That's where Jerry Cannonier would fill in. Kumar Usman's been talking about wanting to come into the division, but it appeared that he didn't want to step on Adesanya's toes. Now, Kamara Usman's looking up, and the king of the division, of which Kamara's told he's not big enough to go, is a guy that Kamara beat. So does that piece of the puzzle finally start coming in together, right? Kamara, Izzy, you guys said you wouldn't fight if one was champion. Neither of you are champion now. Can I now put you in the same division? Like, I'm just sharing with you, like, things move really fast. 
and what a guy wants to do and how he's going to do it will, will be based on the information that he has at that time. And the information that we have right now is that Sean Strickland can beat Izzy Adesanya in a stand-up fight. That was something we, that's information we didn't have a week ago. So if we're going to rematch the fight and you think Izzy's going to win and he is currently a favorite DraftKings right now, then I'm asking you one of two questions. Can now all of a sudden he beat him at a stand-up fight? He couldn't do it Saturday, but now all of a sudden he can. Is that your answer? Fine. Or is he going to fight a different kind of fight? And if he's going to fight a different kind of fight, what kind of a fight do you suggest that is? Volkov. Guys, you know, where's his appreciation at? I feel as though maybe this is too little too late. Volkov, for me popped on my radar. And I knew who he was. He was a long link. He was a Russian kickboxer. Like, these are the things that were being said about him. This is way back early in his career, but he really popped on the radar when he came out to be a backup fighter. He comes through the curtain, doing a weigh-ins 11-9. I'm hosting a show. I'm doing it with Errol Hawani. Volkov walks out. What is Volkov doing here? And we literally are both grabbing our notes and scrolling through them. And I don't generally even have notes because I haven't memorized. I'm a big fan. Like, I'm completely prepared. That's what my daily life is. I, where's Volk? We're searching. Where's Volkov? Well, we find out something about this backup fighter for a heavyweight title fight. We find out we, we were told that he was given ten thousand dollars to just come in and 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 weigh in and do that. I can't tell you that that's true. I'm sharing the story and I'm sharing the moment with you. And it was a very long time ago. And we started seeing more and more guys put into a backup position. We even started to see where a little bit of a trend was going on policy-wise that if you do a backup fight, whether you get it or you don't, you will then be given it. Consider yourself a number one contender, all uh Colby Covington right now. Colby ends up being the backup fighter, flies up across the pond. It's Leon versus Kamara. Leon comes out on top. Colby and Leon next. I'm just offering that for an example because while Volkov never made it that far, it does seem as though this is a guy that's getting better and better. And I got really interested in him over the weekend when he put that choke on Taito Ivasa. And if you ever fight Taito Ivasa, you're going to know that you've been in a fight. Like He is a brawler. He's going to fight you everywhere. Not only is Ty a brawler, he's a brawler that's got pretty good lungs. And he doesn't really mind being hit. And he's going to come out and he's going to hit you. I mean, I think all of my points are proven by the fact that when Volkov did beat him, Volkov, who is a stand-up fighter, he's a kickboxer from Russia. This is how they build him from day one. Wins the fight on the ground in a full mount. I mean, right, when when the trained striker doesn't want to be striking, I think we can give those compliments to Tai Tuivasa, that he's frightening on his feet, that he's got some power in his hands. I think that we would be right to give him that nod and show him that respect. So I start going down a rabbit hole of Volkov because I don't know a ton about him. I've seen him. I've seen his matches. I've seen him come up short. Like I watched him fight Derek Lewis. I watched him fight Curtis Blaze, just for example. And I know that he can do the long fights. I've seen him in main event positions. But what I don't know, moreover, is I don't know who his coaches are. I don't know who his trainer is. I don't know what Jimmy's out of. So I set down a path and I want to go out and find those things. And I come to a page and I just, oh gosh, he's training out in Vegas. And there's some places that you go if you want to see your career die. 
If you want to see it die slowly, there's places you can go. If you want to elongate your career, if you want to get better, like there are places that have stigma and stereotypes that they have earned over history. And if you're a really good fighter and you go to Vegas, your clock just started ticking. This would be in depth that it would be difficult for me to explain. But I lived through this my entire life. And you want a guy to be confident, right? Coaches want to preach that. And for a guy to be confident, he's got to be a hard worker. He's got to work out, outwork the competition. These are preached, but they're in direct conflict with one another. If you're ever running a team, it could be a high school team or a college team, don't do two workouts a day. If you do two workouts a day, don't tell your team they need confidence because they won't have any. The second workout has to be done on their own. If I see everybody else working out and I know what they're doing, there's no ability for me to be more confident. There's no ability for me to believe that I have those secret answers. I know something you don't. It can't be done because I know they're all doing it. How can I be the hardest worker in a room, which every coach tells you to do, when you're making the guys do the same thing? Oh, by the way, you're doing it twice a day. The second workout has got to be on his own. So he can feel, so he cannot see, he doesn't hear. He can feel as though he is paying a price, he is doing something more, he is showing a discipline, he is getting his own workouts together. It works this way all the time. If you get the greats and you put them together, there now is nothing great. If everybody's great, nobody's great. If everybody works hard, nobody worked hard. And I only bring this to you because wherever you're going in Vegas or whatever it is they do to get you out there, if you're with the same coaches and the same athletes that have the same dreams, nobody stands out. And you're much better, and history's on my side, to be in that foreign country in, in a guy's garage that people don't all know about. To have that little hole in the wall, that little dirty tennis court in the corner that's created six Wimbledon champions. And I don't know where Volkov plans to go. And I, I, I plan to support him and cheer for him. I mean, I do feel there's another guy, Ozdemir. I feel like Ozdemir at 205 pounds and Volkov at heavyweight are very much the same guy, which are two complete studs that haven't had the absolute smoothest of past. They've had some roadblocks. They've stubbed their toe a few times. But I feel like those are the same guy that have shown a resiliency. They got meaningful places on the car. They got somebody sitting around going, eh, no. No, his best days aren't done just yet. Where is his ceiling? We don't know. But his floor appears to be pretty high. Like, I I really do think that Ozdemir deserves way more credit than he gets. And I think that about Volkov. But what are you going to do with a Volkov? What are you going to do with a guy who's a co-main event on a pay-per-view? A very sought-after spot, and he won by finish. Which everybody says, you got to win, and you got to win by finish. Okay, he did all of those things, and he did it in a beautiful spot. Should I assume he's at a minimum going to return to a co-main event spot? That's how this works. It's what the word promotion as opposed to demotion means. If he's in a co-main event spot and he wins, he stays or moves up. If he wins in a co-main spot and you pull him down, what was the point of doing the whole thing? So if we've got a Russian fighter who left Russia, trains in Vegas, I don't know who, and I searched for it, named Bolkov that's been around for a really long time. He's only lost to the top guys. who's a winner in a co-main event. We better get ready to see what's next for him, and I'll bet you it's going to be something pretty interesting. He lost to Tom Aspinall by straight arm bar about a year ago. That's off the top of my head. I know Tom has sat out for a year, so I, I could have my dates wrong, but he's a top guy. 
And if he's changing up his training and he's showing a sacrifice, even if he picked, uh, even if he picked the world's worst place, he didn't pick it because he he knew that he thought this was a great place to go. That's sacrifice. That's dedication. I haven't seen him get on top of somebody. I don't even know the name of that choke. Somebody said it was Ezekiel. Is that true? It, that may or may not be true. Ezekiel in Oregon, you go to Whole Foods, it's a kind of bread. Ezekiel in the octagon, you get on top. I mean, maybe. But if those pieces are all true and you've got a Russian striker who's dedicated and realized he wasn't learning the right thing, so then he moves out to the death of a career to Las Vegas, and you have a Russian striker who's now finishing fights on the ground in a full mount with chokes that are so tricky that I can't even produce the name of it, I think those are good things. I think that's something that you need to have your eye open for. I think that's something that you need to start finding matches for. I think it should be reflected within the rankings. And I think if you have a guy named Bulkov who trains in Russia under kickboxing, who moved to Vegas, who's a co-main eventer that won, I shouldn't have to call him Bulkov. I should know if that's his first name or his last name. I should know his nickname. I should more, know more about him. I want to. I'm interested. But you got to meet me partway here, Volkov. you got to tell me a little bit about yourself. There's something within that piece that I just put out that isn't true. I want it to be, but there's something that I got wrong. Correct me. Have your people correct me. Show a pulse. Do something. I'll meet you part way. I went first. I put your name right up here in lights. It's your turn. Let's make it real simple. Is Volkov your first name or your last name? Football is back in full swing with another week of epic games. And who's got you covered on the action? For every single one of them, DraftKings Sportsbook an official sports betting partner of the NFL. New customers can bet $5 on football and get $200 instantly in bonus bets. Nobody's missing out on all the action this season. All DraftKings customers can take advantage of two new offers every game day this September. Get in on the NFL Week 2 action with DraftKings Sportsbook. All you got to do is download the app. Go do it right now. Use the promo code CHAIL when you sign up. New customers can bet just $5 and take home 200 instantly in bonus bets. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code CHAIL. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877 Hope NY or text Hope NY to number 467 369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888 789 7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort, Kansas, 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction, void in Ontario. See sportsbook.draftkings.com slash football terms for eligibility, terms and responsible gaming resources. Bonus bets expire seven days after issuance. Eligibility and deposit restrictions apply. Guys, the number one question I get asked all the time, what's the most important habit you can build on to be successful? You know what my answer is? Sleep. I am no sleep expert, but I can tell you that for myself, I perform at my optimum level 
mentally and physically when I'm getting regular deep sleep and honestly that hasn't always been easy. This is where Momentous Sleep Pack comes in. Momentous experts created a natural ingredient combination that will help you fall asleep faster, stay asleep longer, and wake up refreshed. The ingredients are so clean that they're used by the best Olympians, pro athletes, and college teams. Momentous Sleep Pack has every certification under the sun, including being NSF certified. I usually take a pack 30 minutes before bed and boom, I wake up feeling like a million bucks. If you're having trouble sleeping and it's affecting your daily performance, I highly recommend Momentous Sleep Pack. Designed by the world's best experts, used by the world's best teams and athletes, and made for all of us. Guys, go to livemomentous.com. Use the promo code CHAIL. That's going to get you 20% off your first order. That's livemomentous.com and use the promo code CHAIL. Sugar Sean's next opponent is coming up in just a minute. Before I get to that, did you think it was interesting that Sterling was in attendance on Saturday night? I mean, think about that. They threw the camera to him. Do you guys know the piece? First off, Sterling looked great. He's got the sunglasses. He's got that. He's always wearing a cool shirt. Like, he's cool shirt guy. He looks great. He holds up his iPhone. So they throw the camera to him, and he holds up his iPhone. And his iPhone says... Rematch, comma, sugar, question mark. This is how he asks O'Malley publicly for a rematch. This is how he did it. That's very clever. That was very cute. By the way, who brought Sterling to Australia? Why was he there? They brought him out, meaning the UFC. They brought him out for a reason. Now, they had done a Q&A, which is a very popular thing that the UFC does. It gets great numbers. It's real interactive. The crowds love it. But they did that with Justin Gaethje. They didn't do that with Sterling. What did Sterling do? What was his participation? I bring it to you because O'Malley has an opponent. I'm about to get to that. I want you to tell me who it is. And the fact that Sterling was flown across the world, put on camera with a cameo where he's calling out Sean should be a massive clue to you. Okay. Now, how do I know the Sugar Sean has a rematch? Oh, by the way, while Aljo is out there in Australia, while he's holding this thing in the cool shirt, looking great, while he's doing that simultaneously, guess who was not there? Guess who was not brought and who did not go to social media at the same exact time? Marab. Marab was surprisingly quiet. And he was not invited, and he was not in attendance. And it would seem that between the two, you have a number one contender who's won nine in a row, or do you have a number one contender because he set the record and then just lost the belt, right? I mean, this is the great debate. These aren't like Chael's opinion or what Chael's throwing in. This is the very debate and discussion that we're having right now. So, how do you see it? Who's got it? Who's winning? Here's what I want to tell you. Sugar Sean calls me, and it leaves me a voicemail. And it wasn't a secret. By the way, I'm not like breaking something. This is fair for me to share. But he, it is done. He does have a match. He's got a big announcement coming soon. Those are the words that he used. I'm the one telling you match. He's got a big announcement and it's coming soon. And he says, he says, Uncle Chael, I'd love to tell you, but I can't. The word can't get out. I'm just excited. I wanted to share it. I wanted to call my Uncle Chael. This is what he says to me. Now, I understand 
what a big announcement means, right? Like if he had just signed with Monster Energy, he would have given me a hint that he signed with Monster Energy. He's got a fight. And for me, the fact that he has a fight, I could stop you right there. Before I find out who it is, I feel as though I could stop you right there. Sean O'Malley has a fight. Sean O'Malley just fought three weeks ago. People are still doing headlines and stories. I'm one of them talking about Sean O'Malley's last fight. Talking about coming out of Boston and all the things that come with it. Ian Gary's even gotten brought along for his uh, past performance. I mean, I'll just share with you, like, it doesn't work that way. Sean Strickland just captured the imaginations of the world. I promise you, three weeks from now, we're not going to be talking about Sean Strickland beating Izzy. I promise you that. No fight goes this way, but we're still discussing Sean O'Malley. So in the midst of still discussing Sean O'Malley, we now give him a match. That's huge. That's huge. I mean, that is what you do with mega stars. Put that in perspective for you. Jamal Hill won the title in January. In July... Jamal Hill relinquished the belt with an injury, but at that time, seven months later, not only did Jamal not have a fight, there wasn't even a, a concrete rumor that we could speculate around of a fight that he was going to have. Are you ready for that? Seven months, he's the champion of the world. We don't even have a rumor as to who it is that he's going to be facing. I could use this in the perspective of Islam Makhachev, whose last fight was in Perth in March. And while Islam does have a match coming up in October, he had no announcement of a match for a meaningful period of time. In fact, the gentleman he's getting ready to fight in the fight that they had to see who his number one contender gets to draw into him. When did that happen, guys? June or July? Islam sat all that time without any kind of an announcement. That would be standard. That would be normal. John Jones was the heavyweight champion of the world. We were told five different opponents for him before they finally put him in there with Surreal gone, which looked like we've given up, just get us a warm body. I'm not putting any of these guys down. I'm sharing with you the landscape that we have, and I'm sharing with you what is very normal within our industry. But it's not normal for Sean. Sean is 21 days removed from competition, and they've already found an opponent for him. Now, when you are to speculate about who is that and who would that be, I got this piece of information that I'm sharing with you today on Sunday. Aljo flew out to Australia and made his case on Saturday. I don't believe that they would get something turned around and put together that quickly, and I do believe if it could get turned around and put together that quickly, you save the flight and you don't send him out to Australia in the first place. I don't know. I'm a guy guessing. Marab might have had a party or something else to do. The fact that he's been quiet for 24 hours really doesn't mean all that much, and ultimately, if... Sugar Sean has an opponent. I have to assume we start with Cheeto. Now, the opportunity for other guys, and it's an opportunity that Henry Cejudo saw before anybody else. The opportunity for other guys is what if we can't get Cheeto? What if Cheeto says no, it's not enough money? All of a sudden, Cheeto plays that game. Very unlikely. What if, what if it comes out and Cheeto's hurt or injured? Now, that is a lot more common. And as unlikely as it is, it's still something that you have to hedge for, that you have to plan for. There's a reason you have backup fighters, and there's a reason that those are sought-after spots. It would just seem to me that if Sean has the opponent to a point that all he needs is his announcement, and he wanted to share his excitement with his Uncle Chill, which was very sweet. I appreciate it hearing from my nephew, but I will tell you this. You're not going to go to second and third option. 
You're not going to go bring in somebody other than the person that you wanted to bring in. You're not going to need a Hail Mary pass, and you're not going to need any kind of solicitation through the media or any games as fun as they are to play. Your first option is your first option. It's the first guy that you call. And if you got a yes from him to the point that it's done this quickly, I have to think that that's Cheeto. I wasn't told that. I'm having to guess like anybody else. My own nephew's making me guess like anybody else, but I think that he wanted me to. I think that's why he told me this in the first place. So I'm making my guess. Sugar Sean does have an opponent, and he does have a fight. That I can tell you. I think that the opponent in fight is going to be against Cheeto Barrett. BTK killers, that ring a bell? Bind, torture, kill is what BTK stands for. So this is a serial killer out of Kansas. And he started back in the 70s. And he got away He got away with it as either 19 years or 29 years. I'm, I must tell you, I, I always get that wrong. But I get that wrong because I went to two different places and I was reading about him last night. And one said 19 and one said 29. The point is... Got away for a meaningful period of time. You might think, well, how is that possible? This guy must be a really good criminal. Well, small town, small town police work. And he was the most unlikely guy that you would suspect. Neighborhood, wife at home, daughter. I think two daughters. Um, and then he was a member of the church. And he was not only a member of the church, he was very active. He wasn't a leader like a cult leader. I mean, this was, this was a regular church, but... He was active, never missed on Sundays, took the family and involved as well. He volunteered and did like patrolman type work, like night watch, but he would also use those shifts, if you will, for what's known as trolling. He would troll areas to try to identify victims. Once he identifies the victims, he then moves into the stalking stage. Where did I get those exact words? From him. He's one of these guys, if you haven't seen him, he's one of these guys that's very chilling, okay? Because they will speak to you so candidly about what they did. Once they're caught and they're apprehended, they will speak to it almost with a glee. And they will come down to details that you, as the interrogator, would not even think to ask for. Much like a guy later in life who is reliving high school football games. Where it brings him a joy, it brings him a pride, he wants to talk about it, he loves having those memories. And that is what BTK did, he had made a full confession, he was caught, he made a full confession to a ridiculously high amount of murders. And he was known to bind them, torture them, then kill them. I know, I know this is strong language, but BTK, this is all over the news right now. Now I'm giving you, this starts back in the 70s, and that's where I'm starting with this story. So fast forward, what was the 19 years or the 29 years based on the source that you went to, and they finally get him. Now, before they got him, they knew it was him. They knew it was him in terms of the evidence and everything pointed to him. But then when they went and surveilled him, the police actually turned to each other and go, oh, it can't be him. Even though they had the evidence, even though it was right in front of them, they literally said, oh, it can't be him. And they went the other way for meaningful amounts of time. So I'm talking about years and years, a half a decade, maybe even a full decade. Even though they had him, oh, it can't be him. I must tell you, he looked like a very regular guy. And if you go and you learn about him and you read about him, and you, know, you check the financials, a lot of crimes, there's like some kind of financial element. There was nothing like that. There was nothing weird about this guy. In fact, it was quite the opposite. I mean, he really looked the part. And when I started down this rabbit hole, he 
had gone before the judge. They've already got a deal. He's made a full confession, and he's in before the judge. The judge is going to sentence him to death. But the judge says to him, I know you've made a confession. I know what you're here for. But I got to live with this decision as much as you're going to die with this decision. I need to hear myself from you. And let's start at the beginning. Tell me about the first one ever. Tell me about the Williamson family. So when BTK goes through this, it is so calm. I'm trying to act him out right now. I'm trying to act him out. And if you see him in court, right, he's a little bit balding. He's got a real well-groomed goatee, wears glasses, and he kind of looks down over. He's not a small man, but he's not intimidating. I mean, he's probably over six feet tall, but he's not an intimidating case. He's got a little frumpy. He's got on a very nice suit in court, speaks with a very nice demeanor. And he says that I came to the back door. This is the very first family he's ever done. Came to the back door. One of the children let me in. So I just followed them into the kitchen where the rest of the family was having dinner. Real calm. Since I present them with a revolver and I let them know I'm a fugitive. And he wasn't at this time. He'd never done a crime. This is his first whatever. This is just his story to the family. I'm a fugitive. I'm on the run. So I need your car, and I'm also going to need some food. But he did this as a way of getting them to say, okay, let's just, let's do what he needs to do, and he'll be on his way. So he brings the family forward to the living room, and he makes the wife, and the wife's got to tie everybody. So she ties the husband, she ties the two kids, and he ties her up. Well, the husband makes a claim to BTK. He says, hey, I was in a car wreck about a week ago. My rib hurts. These are too tight. I'm uncomfortable. So BTK loosens them. And then a little bit of time goes by, and the husband says it again. Hey, I'm not comfortable. Okay, ah, his rib. So he loosens it again. And then ultimately he goes and gets a big pillow from the couch and puts it down so he can put him on his side. And this is him telling the story, right? This is very chilling. He says, so I, I put him on the side so he can be more comfortable. That's a quote. So he can be more comfortable. And once he looked like he was more comfortable so that rib wasn't bothering him, that's when I put the bag over his head and tied it off with the cords. And you're just, oh my God, I can't, I, I've never heard anybody speak like this, right? And that isn't quite literal. There's a guy called the Iceman who did that. And I only learned about the Iceman because Stone Cold Steve Austin adopted his character over this serial killer. All right. So BTK is just telling the story. And by the way, he then goes in to the children. I mean, this is as horrific as it gets, but he speaks to you as calmly as can be. And he gives details. Lots of them. Ones that they don't even have. He's enjoying going through this, and he moves right on to the next case, and he moves right on to the next one. And he explains to the judge, because the judge even says at one point, what does trolling mean? He says, well, Your Honor, a serial killer has four stages, and the first stage is called trolling. That's where you surveil an area until you identify a victim. Once you identify the victim, you're no longer looking at an area, you're just following that victim. That's called stalking. I mean, he goes through these four stages, this is chilling stuff. And see, when you even go, when you even go to the king himself, Manson, you can't get an answer out of Manson. Like Manson never confessed to anything. Hey, why did you do this? Why, why, what was your problem with Miss Tate? Oh man, it was the music, man. I'm the king of the underworld, man. It speaks me in the music. I'm the God. I'm the, you're like, start doing the air drums and he'll give you something that's really entertaining to watch, but he'll never answer your question. He will never confess to anything. It's relevant that you understand that concept because BTK confessed to it all, and therefore you believe him. You now believe him. But one of the pieces, and I will just tell you, as an amateur sleuth, when this all came down, it was like 2004, 2009. My, my, my dates aren't totally right when he first got caught, but it was in my adult life. And 
one of the things that happened as he told the story is he, he used to be like a traveling salesman. He had to leave town for work. And these crimes, these BTKs are going on in his area. And his wife would tell him when he left, like, hey, honey, I, I sure hope you get back soon. I don't like being here without you with this guy out here. And BTK would always assure his wife, you have nothing to worry about. Now, they use that almost as a comedic relief. Like when BTK told it, he almost said it for like a comedic relief. But I do remember, even when I heard about this originally, thinking, wait a minute. If you've got a serial killer and he's leaving town, we need to find out where he went and when, and then we need to go work with that police department and just see if there's any cold case files that match this same description. I remember thinking that. But he was so candid and so open that when they finally get to the final point of, is there anything else that we don't know about? And he says, no, we believe it, and we close the book. Now, fast forward to last week, five days ago. They're going through his house, and I don't know who they are. My assumption in this is his wife and daughter must have sold it and moved, and somebody else has moved in. And maybe even they sold it, and this is yet another person. I don't know who they are, but they find within the house two trapdoors. So they call the police, right? They know the history of the house. They call the police. The police come over. They go into these trapdoors. Within the trapdoors, there's a journal that's making confessions. There's also what's known as trophies. And within those trophies was a purple shirt. Now, within the journal, it sounds as though he whacked a gal out in Oklahoma. And then you find the purple shirt. Well, there is a cold case file of a girl from Oklahoma this exact same time that he made the journal entry, who, by the way, his last known photo was a Polaroid wearing the same purple shirt. So now you start to come into a question of there are more. How many more? Like, as bad as he was as a serial killer, as terrible as that buying torture kill is what they name a guy, they did think he was honest. They thought they had it all. And now it's looking very much like they don't. So if they don't, and if the girl in Oklahoma is true, how many other ones were buying, tortured, and killed? How many other ones around the nation, around the places he tried? I don't have the answers for you right now. And I don't even share this with you to entertain you, by the way. I just shared all that I did almost as a counseling session. I watched this. I went down this rabbit hole. When I clicked on this piece, I did not know what I was getting ready to see. It was recommended to me by YouTube. And I had just watched a piece on Sammy the Bull. I don't know how YouTube thought Sammy the Bull and the BTK were quite tied together, but this is what they suggest for me. I click on it, and I was enthralled by it, but it was very chilling. This was very troubling stuff, and it also looks like a case that isn't over. And I really, truly do recall at the time when he tried to make the joke, this is like 2004, when he tried to make the joke about his wife, saying, honey, you have nothing to worry about. I remember thinking, if you're traveling and you're around the nation, shouldn't we be looking into when and where, and if there's any cold case crimes, particularly the make this description? Very troubling stuff. If you want to go on YouTube or the internet, you want to Google this? caution you in advance. All right, guys, that's it for today's episode. Thank you for listening. And remember that if you want to support the show, you can leave me a review on Apple Podcasts like this one from Scott, which says the bad guy is the people's champ of everything MMA. Well, thank you, Scott. And the people's champ is going to be back on Friday. Until then, I am Chael Sonnen, and you are welcome. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. 
by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.